This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is, is there absolute truth? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? We will not be taking calls today, so we have a couple of special guests. One of them has written a book, and we'll talk to him in a little bit about absolute truth. But there's someone even more special, so we had to bump our regular guest to speak to someone who it's their first time in studio. And we're speaking with a young man named Thomas. Is that you, Thomas? Mm-hmm. So, Thomas, were you named after the tank engine? Uh, I think so. Yeah? Your parents like that, Thomas the Tank Engine? Uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. So, Thomas, how old are you? Six. And why are you here in the studio today? Well, that's because uh, we're supposed to. You're, somebody bra- dragged you along and said you were supposed to be here today? Yeah, the leader. The, the leader of yeah. what? Of the tiger cubs. Oh, the tiger cubs. That's cool. So what do tiger cubs do? Well, they do, like, they camp. Oh. And they... So your parents aren't tigers, though, right? Yeah, they're not. They're not tigers. They're people? Yeah. Okay. So tiger cubs, when they go camping, do you chase tigers or hunt tigers? No. Where do the tigers come in? Well, they just, like, camping. Well, we we can just, like, go to Africa. Yeah? Yeah, we just, like, camp near in the... We just camp in the forest. We okay. don't, like, camp in Africa. Right. So when was the last time you were camping? Oh, uh, oh. Well, I mean, when the, t- when the tigers, wolves, bears, and weeblos were camping, too. Okay. Okay. That, did you have fun? Yeah. So is it a fun to be a tiger cub? Yeah. And how old are you, Thomas? Six. Six years old. Mm-hmm. Are you married? No. No? You're not married? Okay. So, girls, listen up. There's a chance for you there. <laughs> so, uh, what cub pack What cub pack number are you from? Uh, I know it says right there on your shirt. He's reading his shirt. Uh, it's 58. Cub pack 58. Uh-huh. Great. Thank you. But if you look at it upside down, it's 85. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Thomas, thank you for being on the air with us. We really appreciate you. Thanks. Okay, take care. All right. All right, that was Thomas from Cub Pack 58. So, now, uh, girls, hold your uh, phone calls and emails. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, anybody who wants to email him can email to email at evidenceforfaith.com. We'll pass all the love letters on. Exactly. All right. So if you're joining us for the first time, you can check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. 
we have past podcasts there, past radio shows. You can also look at our podcast page on iTunes. And we have a Facebook page up and running again. So you can like us on Facebook at Evidence for Faith. I saw a really neat church sign the other day. Can I poke that in here? Oh, sure. The, the sign said, uh, if you want to be friends with Jesus, try Facebook. Oh, I like that. Isn't that cool? I wonder if there is a faith book. I don't know, but there should be one. There should be. I like that. Okay, there's another marketing idea for all you software engineers out there. Well, our quote from the day is from C.S. Lewis, and a nice short one since we're barraged with activity today. He said, education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make man a more clever devil. That quote by C.S. Lewis. And we're going to be talking about values and morals today. I didn't realize that C.S. Lewis was such a punny guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's so clever. Clever devil. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, you said you read Mere Christianity when you were a young man, right? Yeah, that was one of the first books I read after I became a Christian. Yeah, it it was a good book, so... Um, We got a very interesting email from an unbeliever uh, and a skeptic, and his name is Godfrey. So I thought we would read that for people. It's a a bit long, but I think it's very instructive. So we'll just go through some of the items he talks about. Hey, guys, I stumbled across your podcast while looking for something else, and seeing the title of the latest episode, I thought I'd have a listen. As a non-believer, I find it interesting that different people can look at the same evidence and come to diametrically opposed positions. I thought I should share some observations on your discussion with Alex McFarland. There seemed to be a lot of emphasis on kids, which is probably driven by the diminishing number of young people who profess faith. Now, uh, let me pause and say uh, that's pretty true. Um, it's It's going declining amongst Catholics and left-leaning churches, but actually evangelical churches have been increasing. So uh, although the overall number of kids professing faith, that's true, it has been declining. Then he says, I wonder if your position is to tell your kids what they should believe or to simply provide a good example and let them decide for themselves. Okay, well, what do you think, Kurt? You think we should do that? Should we force our kids to believe or should we let them decide for themselves? Uh, I think... I don't think you should force them to believe in anything, of but I, not. you know, you can't take the opposite position either and say, well, I'm believe not going to tell them want. anything, and yeah, figure it out for yourself. Exactly. You have to give them some kind of instruction. So this is a good example of a false dichotomy. Uh, there is a safe middle ground, and that is to teach best you can what you know is true, but also teach them critical thinking schools skills so they don't get fooled into believing something that's not true, even if it's something that you told them. And sure, as Godfrey says, to be a good example. Yeah, exactly. He goes on, uh, I chose the latter, but I understand that mechanisms of religion tend to push indoctrination by convincing followers that to do otherwise is harmful. I am guessing your concerns about the lack of childhood biblical literacy that you would fit in the former category. Okay, which we don't, although I do believe that uh, you can't avoid indoctrination. Well, isn't it true that most people that have opinions 
um, there's either, if they don't say it right out front, it's usually implied that if you don't believe what I believe, then you're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of a genetic fallacy. You only believe this because you were indoctrinated. Right. Right. I and mean, everybody an- thinks he's right. Exactly. <laughs> so the whole point is to be indoctrinated by the correct doctrine. Right. So- and the, for the reason for the show being here is to provide the evidence that shows why we believe what we believe. That's right. So he says, he continues on, I applaud your call for kids to be given better critical thinking skills, which we do, but surely this core value of skepticism, now that I challenge, skepticism is not critical thinking skills. Uh, Skepticism is like the opposite of gullibility. Do we want kids to be gullible? No, we don't. Do we want kids to be skeptical? No, we don't. We want them to be critical, which means they examine carefully the evidence for the things they are asked to believe. But to just automatically think things are false, even when given evidence, that is not rational. And that is what skepticism is. And we certainly don't uh, encourage just believing what people say just because they say it. Right. Right. So um, we do believe in it. Well, we do believe a little bit in the value of an authority, right? Somebody who has authority to speak on a topic. So that can be partial evidence, but then you have to then carefully examine what they say. So sure. uh, So he says um, the core value of skepticism will lead them to to the conclusion that faith is not a good reason to accept a proposition. Well, by Godfrey's definition of faith, I agree, because from the context, Godfrey's definition of faith is blind faith. Right. Blind faith is not a good reason to accept a proposition. So one of the reasons I was so intrigued with this letter is because Godfrey doesn't seem to be uh, really kind of grinding an axe with us. He doesn't seem to have a point he's trying to convince us of, uh, us of. He's really just asking questions, but he has these obvious differences in the definitions of words that we have. So he doesn't seem to have stumbled on to the argument that the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's a faith based on evidence. That is, it's a trust based on evidence. He sounds like he has heard the typical uh, statements today by the media and other people, you know, that faith is blind and all that kind of thing, and that's what he's accepted. That's right. And unfortunately, many Christians have also accepted this idea, but historically, this was never the case. So Yes, and if you, if you read the New Testament, especially like the book of Acts, where the disciples are going out trying to convince people to believe in Jesus, they're not going out and saying, oh, you just have to believe in this guy. That's right. They're constantly giving them evidence exactly. to say, this is why you should believe in this guy. Exactly right. And, and last week, we even read from a book that was written in the Middle Ages, and it mentioned about the evidence uh, behind Christianity, and that was by people... Um, you know, just average people. So he continues on, would you describe yourselves as literalists or as, or are some Bible passages just fanciful stories, a means to an end? I have heard Ray Comfort say that he does not agree with everything in the Bible. Does that seem like a stance you could take? 
well, not terribly interested in what Ray Comfort has to say about the Bible. I don't, again, this seems to me to be a false dichotomy. I don't think you, I take the parts of the Bible literally that were intended to be taken literally, and I take the parts of the Bible that uh, are other genres like poetry or parable as those. I don't take those literally. So I would fit into the category of an evidentialist. You know, I believe the parts of the Bible that are meant to be believed in the way they're meant to be believed. If it's written as a historical document, we take it as history. Exactly. If it's written as uh, fanciful poetry or whatever, we take it that way. Exactly. Then he goes on, the notion of cognitive dissonance got my attention as I have mostly heard it used as a criticism of religion, not to defend it. When the topic was raised, I think it was your guest, Alex McFarland, who said something akin to atheism is counterintuitive and wastes the brain's bandwidth. This sounds like a defense of lazy thought, um, which, no, in fact... I don't, I don't get that. I don't get that either. <laughs> I, it's not a defense of lazy thought. He's saying that atheism is lazy thought. So, many intuitive things are grossly incorrect, Yes, that might be true, but many non-intuitive things are also grossly incorrect. Like the appearance of the, uh, he continues, like the appearance of the earth to be flat. I'm not asking you to defend Alex's statement, but surely you agree that we should fully utilize our brains and investigate that which at first seems intuitive. Yes, we do. And we also believe you should fully investigate those things which are claimed to be counterintuitive. But many things that are intuitive to some people are not intuitive to others. So. It seems to me that the Internet, he says, going on, the Internet is the enemy of faith, both for the vast amounts of information, which supports an accurate description of the universe via the scientific method, and also for the critical thinking skills developed to defend against dubious claims, which to me sounds like Godfrey just made an incredibly dubious claim. As Then he goes on, as there is such a variety of religions, many mutually exclusive. I expect you would agree that the majority are dubious. Now, I think I could agree with that statement. Yeah, and though we've said that we agree that there are many truths in many of the religions, right. uh, but we don't agree that they are uh, accurate representations of the real world as Christianity is based on the evidence. So, apologies if I come across as arrogant. No, you don't. Godfrey, thank you for the very good letter. Uh, He continues, obviously, we all feel justified in the positions we hold. I hope you take the time to consider these views and perhaps respond. Sincerely, Godfrey. So, thank you, Godfrey. It was a very intelligent, well-written email, and hopefully we address some of the issues. I hope that you will continue to listen to some of the podcasts that we have on iTunes or on the website so that you can get a better understanding of why we think the evidence supports Christianity and not atheism or secularism. And on our Facebook page, too. Oh, yeah. Don't forget the Facebook page. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And it is time for us to introduce our main guest today. Stephen McAndrew is our guest. He is an author. He is a lawyer. And he is also a Ratio Christi chapter director. Stephen, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Thank you very much um, for having me, Keith. Well, Stephen, 
introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. Tell us a, a little bit more about yourself. I, you are Irish, I understand. I am Irish. The accent, I'm told, hasn't traveled as well. Um, I was born in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I lived there until 2001 when I was about 25. Um, my wife is from Buffalo, New York. Um, she was studying over in Dublin where I met her, and then I followed her back to Buffalo continued my legal studies and um, practice I practice law in in Buffalo I'm a corporate lawyer and um, but in the last two three years I've um, gone on my own practice which enabled me to do some of the writing projects um, including the book that you've asked me to talk about today and to blog and also to start up a Rasio Christie chapter at uh, the State University of New York at Buffalo. And McAndrew is not exactly your typical Irish name either. Is that Scottish? It's, and you get this, there's a very, you would think that is Scottish, a good um, Scottish name, but our branch, I'm reliably informed, is um, is from the west coast of Ireland, and it isn't Scottish Presbyterian, but, you know, Irish Catholic. Oh, is this way a down Scotch the line. Irish thing? What's that? Isn't there... A group of people called Scotch Irish. There is. Yeah. Um, so is that you? No, I would oh. be. Um, you know, and you don't want to step on people's get sensitive about these things, but right. um, I, you know, I would be from the Republic of Ireland, and um, I would be. Um, the Scots Irish were a group that came over with, I believe, it was Cromwell or one of the plantations from um, Scotland in around 1600, and stayed. And I would be of the group that were there beforehand. But gotcha. my name does sound very Scottish. Okay, good. And, I, and the accent is just coming through a little bit. So maybe if you think about it, we get that good Irish brogue thing going on. I, I'll try. I'm told that go. sometimes I sound like I'm from Boston. Okay. I always I tell people that, um, you know, as across the Atlantic, the accent kind of got left somewhere in the middle. Um, so I don't know if you've heard that people talk about the mid-Atlantic accent in Ireland. They talk about, you know, Irish people have moved to America and their accent has changed. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, yep. that's kind of where I'm coming from on that. So you've you've brought some of the melting pot with you to the melting pot of the United States, and you're living in Buffalo, New York. So we, before we get started with the serious part of the interview, I have to ask you then, why Buffalo wings are so small? Is it like a vestigial organ that buffaloes, maybe in the ancestors of buffaloes actually fly? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I can tell you the official story. There's a restaurant here that apparently one evening they were holding a private party and they decided let's throw some hot sauce on these chicken wings and the buffalo wing was born. And <laughs> oh, so they're actually chicken. All this time I thought I was eating buffalo. <laughs> Rats. Well, yeah, Rats. we haven't. They, they might be a little bit bigger. Yeah, I, well, that's what I wanted to know is why they weren't bigger. All right, Stephen. We, so, I, I would uh, say, though, that we can assume, Stephen, that your wife, since she's from Buffalo, is probably very good at shoveling snow. Well, they've, they've taught me how to do that. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so I have to say we had a pretty mild winter this year, so I've got to stick up for it. Uh, yes, everybody did. You're lucky. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Stephen, you are a chapter director of Ratio Christi at the University of Buffalo. Before we get into your book, can you tell us a little bit about that chapter and the activities going on there? Well, the chapter at, um, I'm going to call it UB, and University of Buffalo, is brand new. We started up the middle of the semester that just passed. I signed on with Ratio Christi probably last August, 
And so we had six meetings. We had a variety of, you know, some people who were further along in their faith journey than others and some more skeptical who came talked about um, some of the basic evidences for why um, we believe that Christianity is is true and um, the cosmological argument um, that you know, the universe had an origin, the, the teleological argument that there is elements of design in nature. We talked about um, morality, the, or- the origins of morality um, along the lines of what I'll probably talk a little bit more about my book and why the Bible is reliable. Um, and then Randy, we did a, a talk on the historical evidence for the resurrection. All right. And we've also had a chance to do some um, other outreaches with them, um, with Campus Crusade or Crew and Diversity on campus as well. Stephen, we're experiencing a little bit of difficulty with your phone line. Okay. Um, so... If it gets any worse, I, we might need you to call back in and see if we can get a different connection. Okay. Um, but we'll go ahead and try. It seems to have cleared up a little bit. Okay. Welcome to live radio, folks. There you go. <laughs> so we are talking about uh, Stephen's book, Is There Absolute Truth? Why It Doesn't Matter What You Believe If It's Not True. So, Stephen, let me ask you the obvious question. Why did you write this book? Well, I... I was practicing as a lawyer and, you know, working long hours, and I always wanted to write. And um, the idea in my head um, generated from a lot of things. For example, there's a, or I'm not sure if it's on anymore, but on national public radio, they had a series called This I Believe, and it would be a series of monologues where people would say, I believe in change, or I believe in singing, or I believe in in what various different things and what struck me about it and you know i'm coming at it as a christian is that um in a sense people were pulling it out of the ether what their beliefs were without any foundation the statements were this is what i believe i'm going to choose to believe this this works for me mm-hmm. and then at the same time um and it was around about the time when the um the, um, the war in iraq was was at its height there was a huge amount of people, you know, protesting against torture and saying, science, torture is wrong, and human rights are being violated. And some of those same people, um, I suspect, and would also subscribe to, well, why I think certain things are wrong as torture, I can then have subjective beliefs that, such as, I'll believe in change or I'll believe in friendship without examining the basis of those things. And what interested in me, and I had done some study in law school about international law and international humanitarian law, was this contradiction um, where mostly our society, and talking mostly about secular and non-Christian belief that, you know, we're not going to force our beliefs on someone else, that there are no truths that are absolute. But at the same time, there was a big reaction when certain topics are brought up, Mm. such as torture. Mm -hmm. And as a Christian, and thinking about people that I knew, my motive was to at least bring to the surface in people this contradiction between, I'm not going to force my views on you, and then, but I think that there's things that are wrong. And that's, um, so the title of the book, Why It Doesn't Matter What You Believe If It's Not True, 
was um, an attempt to grab people's attention and, and to say what I tried to what I established tried to establish in the book is that if there is absolute truth that there's consequences so there are right or wrong answers to certain questions right and so it does matter um, what you believe and and that was actually one of the interesting things that I liked about the book you know obviously the question of are there absolute truths are morals relative that's been a topic that's been written about quite extensively. There are several very good books about it. Your book addresses those issues in a very interesting way, a little bit different way. And that was one of the things the title really strikes you, why it doesn't matter what you believe if it's not true. You know, things that aren't true really don't matter. And uh, that's one of the obvious uh, things that that gets missed in the whole uh, discussion about absolutes. The other thing is that I found it refreshing that you do bring into this issue the idea about international human rights. Now, for Americans, or maybe it's just me, I think I pay attention to the news fairly well, but we really don't hear much about the international human rights, you know, maybe since the Carter era where Carter made it a, an important point of his administration to develop human rights internationally. The torture issue, of course, did come up. Occasionally there are one or two things that, you know, should we arrest American citizens or should we just shoot them uh, from the skies with drones? You know, those sometimes comes up. But really, um, I think this focus on how the question of relative morals affects this issue is very important, and I like how you brought it out. Now, is that because of your European background? Because, you know, this it seemed to me that a, maybe an American author might not have thought to include this. Well, I think that um, probably the European side of things, um, you know, Ireland's a very small country, so when you grow up there and educated there, you're always looking at other places. Um, you know, and obviously the United Kingdom is one, and the obviously the huge power in the world um, is always the United States. And I think if you're growing up in the United States, you might have the opposite view, since so much is centered in the U.S. and so much power yeah, we that usually... there may be need to. Whereas, for example, a country like Ireland is in their interest to know about or to try and know about the United States, since. Um, Ireland by itself is a relatively small uh, right. population and economically and, and militarily. Yeah, we typically, when we're talking about rights, we typically talk about constitutional rights. And that seems to be the limit of our uh, scope of interest about human rights. And then the third thing that I thought was really interesting and intriguing about your book is you have this theme from the book 1984 throughout, and you use that to, to show the importance of the idea of absolute truth and the how relative morals uh, makes a mess of things. Do you want to um, address that a little bit about how you put that into the book? Sure, and this really came out of a seminar that I did, one of the last things I did, went to college at Trinity College in Dublin, studied philosophy there, and we read, one of the papers we read was written by Richard Rorty, who's now passed away, but was a very celebrated philosophy professor at um, Princeton for, I think, most of his career, um, not a Christian, a secular thinker. And in this paper, um, it's in a book called, if people are interested, 
and contingency, irony, and solidarity. And the point that Rorty is making is he is a pragmatic uh, postmodernist thinker who believes there are no absolute truths. He's even prepared to say in science that maybe no absolute truths. But he wrote in this book an essay on 1984, and his contention was that if the world is as he, if reality is as Rorty believes that it is, or his philosophical um, understanding is that truth is relative, then um, democratic society or liberal in, not liberal conservative, but a society where we have the freedoms that you talked about under the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights, where we think slavery is wrong, where we think discrimination is wrong, a society like that was not destined to be arrived at. It was an historical accident that just happened to happen because certain things happened after each other. So he believed there's nothing to guarantee that you would have a liberal democracy like the United States, like in Western Europe, like a France or a United Kingdom, and that the scenario that was painted in 1984 was something that was quite viable and could happen. Mm. Um, Because he would contend that our ideas of truth are based on society and what we're told or indoctrinated as we um, as we grow, and he drew on philosophers such as Ludwig Wittgenstein, that truth was a societal construct that we're indoctrinated into as we learn language. So if whoever teaches you the language teaches you the concept, so in school, if you're being taught, um, obviously the United States, you know, when my kids go to school, they do the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning, they're thought that, you know, discrimination is wrong, that racism is wrong, that, you know, treating your fellow students is bad. But, for example, under Rorty's view, there could be a school in a possible future or an alternative present in which kids are told that slavery is right, that freedom means doing whatever the government says. And this is, um, if you're familiar with the book 1984, it's um, what, not even a totalitarian society, it's what in that essay um, Richard Wartry would call a post-totalitarian society where all the means of communication have been, are under the control of the, um, the government. There's right. a dictator called Big Brother who may or may not exist, and they, can, they have a language called Newspeak, and they change the meanings of the words. So, right. for example, war is peace, freedom is slavery. And the point that Rorty was trying to make, and I think this is, I would agree with him, if truth is in fact relative, then this is something that could happen. And there would be, um, for example, there there could be no, in liberal democracy, and we have a tradition of of, uh, dissidents who will speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. For example, in um, the Soviet Union, we had Alexander Solzhenitsyn, wrote the Gulag Archipelago and various other books outlining what the Soviet regime had done and no indoctrination and, you know, no amount of imprisonment or maltreatment could stop him from doing that. And similarly, you know, the United States and Martin Luther King would stand up and say, no, this is not right. Um, But in a 1984 world, and this is in fact what happens in the story, the main character 
Winston Smith attempts to say, to speak truth to power in the context of that world and say, this is not right, the, the truth isn't being spoken here, mm-hmm. but he can't do it, and he ends up, by the end, and he's broken by interrogation, and he, one of the things they do is they make him admit that two plus two equals five. Right, right. Which is where you're left if you have relative morals or relative right. truth. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're speaking with author Stephen McAndrew about his book, Why It Doesn't Matter What You Believe If It's Not True. So, Stephen, let's get into the details of the book and I guess the big question that uh, you can elaborate on for me is, uh, how do we know that absolute truths exist? Um, Well, I believe that we all have a certain moral intuition, and that when we see certain things happen, that that kicks in on the moral um, part of truth. For example, this is not in the book, but recently, and I'm not sure if you or perhaps some of your listeners are following some of the events in Syria, there's some very disturbing pictures of um, children, basically 13-year-old boys who have been tortured, and they show the pictures, and you've seen some of this stuff on CNN. Obviously, the, you know, the cigarette burns, the bodies are bloated. And when you see something like that, I think I would challenge anybody to say that no matter what the rights or wrongs or who's on what side of that conflict, that taking a 13-year-old child and torturing them and then killing them is, is wrong, and I think that um, that presses a button. There's something in us that reacts to that, and this is in the book what I call the human rights urge, mm-hmm. and what I challenge people, um, and especially those who may not be familiar with the Bible or with the Church, is to look at it from that point of view. When they see something like that, or hear of atrocities, and they think, well, that's you know a crime, that's a crime against humanity, that's something that no matter what is claimed by whatever side in whatever conflict, there's no political or military justification for, um, you know, torturing children and raping women and all of these things. And that is, in the book, um, what I try to examine. And again, one of the things, taking a step back, that I do in the book is I look at, well, where did we come to be today that mm. the, preva- the, the prevalent belief is that moral truth are subjective or relative, and um, I think that when I, when I, in the book I go back to, to Plato, which a lot of people think is a good place to start with philosophy, Absolutely. and he had a view that there were absolute truths, that he wasn't a Christian, but he believed there were absolute truths, what he called the forms, and that we could see shadows of in the physical, material world in which we live, but which were actually um, spiritual realities that were part of a, a supernatural or a metaphysical world, for example. So the idea of justice, he'd call the form of justice, and we could see a little bit in our world, but the true idea of justice existed independently um, of the physical world. And he um, gives the famous example of the cave, how he explains it is that our existence in this world is as if we're sitting in a cave 
with our backs to the entrance of the cave so we can't see it. And there's a fire um, in front of us, and we're staring at the cave wall. And as people and objects pass the entrance of the cave, we see shadows of them on the wall in the cave. But since these hypothetical people have never left the cave, have never turned around, they don't know there's a world outside the cave, so they think that what they see, the shadows, are the real things, when those are just the shadows. And um, so Plato believed there was absolute truth that were grounded in, call it a transcendent realm, a supernatural or metaphysical um, reality. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that I think happened over time, especially with the Enlightenment in the 17th century, is we attempted to reject anything that talked about um, supernatural or transcendent and focus on science and focus on getting our answers solely solely that way. Right. And we came up with some philosophies um, that really led us down some, some blind alleys. And um, For example, the British empiricists believed that the only truth we could have from the world was through sense data. So what I touch, what I hear, what I smell, and we interpret that in our minds and see objects and other people. But the problem being is that they can't say that we perceive the objects themselves, just the sense data, the, the touching something, seeing something, feeling something, smelling. And so they had a problem with, well, how do we get from that to seeing objects and other people? And this became what was known as the scandal of philosophy, where they couldn't prove the existence of the world outside of yourself or of other minds. Right. And well, this really reminds me, we were talking earlier in the show about C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He has a passage in there where he, uh, he tells you how to challenge a person who says that, for instance, that morality is relative. He says, um, to take an example, if somebody's heading toward a seat on the subway, go grab the seat in front of him and then see what the guy's reaction is. Almost always they'll say, hey, that's not right, that's not fair that you took my seat. Or if you slap somebody in the face and, you know, their reaction is, well, you shouldn't have done that, that's not right, you know, and then you've got them. It's like, well, you know, if there's no universal morality, then how can you tell me that's wrong? Right. But everybody does that. <laughs> and and further, you know, as a, if you want to say, a global society, particularly in the aftermath of the Second World War and Nazi Germany and the Nuremberg trials, we have put in place what we call the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where as the nations of the world have seen fit to sign on to this in 1948 and to keep agreeing to this, that there are fundamental principles in all societies, in all situations, that should not be violated. So I, I right. agree with what you're saying, so we have it on the personal level, where, you know, I recently had my um, laptop stolen, and I can tell you I was not a happy camper. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you don't feel that was fair of the person that took it. <laughs> right. You know, I was I was angry, you know, I had to get my, you know, so I had to get my car fixed. That's not just his morals. Perhaps he believed that stealing was right. <laughs> right, you know, and obviously, as you say, you challenge anyone when something is 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 taken from them or something is forced. But try stealing your laptop back from him and see if he thinks that's fair. <laughs> well, you know, if I could find him, I might try. But and that's that's it. And I think you know, globally, and when you push those buttons too, 
and we agreed that there are certain things that just aren't aren't right. And you know, the example of 1984. If you say, "Well, do you think that that could happen? Do you think we could have a society and no one could ever possibly step in and say this is wrong and challenge power and that?" even the idea of freedom, the idea of truth, would be obliterated. And I think you get from most people, there are some people who will say, no, that is true. And most people will say that's that's ridiculous. And they do hold, when you force it to them, they do agree that there are some absolute standards that can't be, should not be violated. Now, let me... uh play devil's advocate a, a little bit here, and then you mentioned the torture in uh, Syria going on. Correct. But certainly someone must have done those tortures, and someone must have felt that that was okay to do, and that they were actually probably doing something good, uh, maybe for the state or for the dictator. And so I would not be surprised at all if we learned that the people who did that didn't think they were doing anything wrong at all. So... You can see, Stephen, that that it must be true then that uh, morals are relative. Because look at these men; they don't think they did anything wrong. Well, I think that's um, where you come down to and return to Nuremberg. That's exactly what they'd argued in Nuremberg, and um, before that, international law applied to the states, the nation states um, of the world, and not to individuals. And so they would say. At the time that these actions, the Nazi war criminals, the time these actions happened, we were acting under orders from our government. We were acting in accordance with our government. We're responsible to them, but not to you. Right. We were just following orders, is what they all said. And the world community said, no, there's such a thing as a crime against humanity. As we said, something that in any society is wrong. And to return to the Syria example, I'm sure people could say, well... If we, you know, frighten the protesters, then we'll have law and order, and then we'll put an end to this um, protesting. But I think that when it when push comes to shove, if you're the person who's asked to do that, there is um, in each of us a moral compass that will say this is not a legitimate way to further the state's end or to further a military end and to torture and murder young children and to scare their children. And it brings me on to something, a lot of times we talk about morality, we think of um, utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number or the greatest pleasure for for the greatest number in the fact that, for example, if I kill one or two people or if I torture one or two people, this will further the good of more people, so therefore it's morally justified. And in the book, one of the things that I talk about after I talk about the fact that um, there are absolutes, that there must be a source of these absolutes, and the source of these can't be a utilitarian type of idea. Whatever the source is of this, what I call the human rights urge, this inner repulsion to what we saw in Nazi Germany when we see young children tortured, or I'm sure people can fill in the blanks, and the source of that, a couple of things that I think it must fulfill, it must, um, the financial principle is that each life is inherently valuable, no matter who they are, where they are, what they've done, there is an inherent value, um, infinitely valuable to that life. And the other core tenant of the human rights urge, and you can see this in the Red Cross, which had origins 
um, um, Christian origins is the fact that no matter who they are, they deserve the same treatment. And when but I took... But again, this um, example we're using of the people torturing the children, I'll bet if the circumstances were to be turned around and if the government were to suddenly come in and say, well, to the torturer, we decided to torture you to teach you never to disobey us, I'll bet that torturer wouldn't say, okay, that's fair. Right. He would suddenly feel that that's unfair. You can't do that. No. It, it, Even if he wasn't allowed to say that, he would... He would more than likely think that. No, I agreed. He would, as we said, say, well, I was following orders and I have rights and I have due process rights. I deserve, and you know, from right. the, you know, everyone deserves a trial and these are things that are fundamental rights. We don't deserve cruel and unusual punishment. Right, exactly. But then he would be contradicting what he himself just did to the children. Well, I think this, and again, in, in the book, when I, I asked the question, so... Because I believe the the contradiction between the human rights surge and moral relativism is so, when you look at it, is so glaring. I, I ask, well, why do we do this? Why does society do this? And I think the reason is that we focus on the fact that if morals are relative, I can do whatever I want. So that's good for me. But what we fail to look at is the flip side of that is that everyone else can do whatever they want to me. Right. Exactly. And, and is a English... Oh. philosopher in the 16th century, uh, uh, Thomas Hobbes, said very famously in, a wor- in, in his world, if there wasn't uh, certain rules or order, law and order in place, life would be, if everybody could was their own king and could do whatever they want, he said life would be nasty, brutish, and short. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, again, the, the old adage, you know, my rights you know, to swing my fist and where your nose begins, <laughs> we forget that. And if you look at our situations, for the most part, um, you know, even in the United States, a relatively affluent country, there's many things that we can't do. I just can't go to the Porsche dealership and drive out with a Porsche. Mm, right. I can't go to, go to the <laughs> bank and say, hey, I want all this money. I can't um, tell somebody I want their job. There's, you know, really so many things that we can't do, and it's nearly ridiculous that we have this this belief that we can um, do what we want, and, but when we see there's so many constraints, you know, on us as to what we can do, but society is, in my opinion, increasingly self-obsessed, we're increasingly narcissistic, and I think the philosophy of the times um, reflects society at the time. We want to feel good about doing what we want, while at the same time, we don't think about um, what others can do to us. And to return to 1984, one of the great um, metaphors um, in that book is the idea of doublethink, where we can do one thing that totally contradicts what we know is true at the same time. Um, for example, in that book, the main character, Winston Smith, his job is to change the newspaper ar- archives to coincide with whatever the party has decided the truth should be for that time. So he changes this person... You know, they were a hero, but he goes back two years and makes them a villain. And at the same time, he believes that what he's, what the party says is true is true, but he knows in his mind that um, it's not true. But the, the party workers, such as Winston Smith in 1984, are required to have doublethink, to do their jobs and change reality, and to enforce the rules of the party and their wishes. They are forced 
to do things that are contradictory to the belief that the party is propagating the truth. And I think that's what we do when it comes to moral relativism and, and human rights. We think, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to force my views on others. While at the same time, when we see certain news stories, we hear certain things, we scream at against genocide, against uh, human rights abuses that we hear throughout the world. So, Stephen, then what is the source of these truths, these absolute truths that you establish in your book? Well, I argue that it's Christianity because it um, values Christian, Christianity values each person's infinitely valuable. We have the example of the parable of the lost sheep, where um, Jesus gave the example of even if one sheep out of a hundred is lost, he will go find that sheep, even though that's the opposite of utilitarianism, which would say, well, got the 99 here, okay, let's let that one, you know, kind of went its own way. So it's that no matter who it is, everyone is infinitely valuable, and then um, that no matter where they are, even our enemies are to be treated with respect and certain rights. For example, then um, the story of the, the Good Samaritan, the the Samaritan man and helped the Jewish man, and if, and if people know the background, the Samaritans were traditional enemies of right. the Jewish people there, and the point of the story, Jesus was challenging their concept of who your neighbor is, who you have to help. It's not just people like you, but it's right. anyone everywhere. And then the two of those strands, you know, each life is infinitely valuable, and even our enemies come together in the great... Um, the central narrative of Christianity, that Christ Jesus came to earth as a man, or man fully God, and died for each one of us, right. because he felt we were infinitely valuable, and even though, as the Bible says, we were enemies with God. So I think that anyone who's looking at a source, you know, once you've said there are these absolute moral truths, they must come from somewhere, Got I think it. needs to seriously look at Christianity. Very good. Stephen McAndrew, we've been talking with Stephen McAndrew. Thank you, Stephen, for being on Evidence for Faith. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah, what?